As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. You get to a point and you realize logistically, yes, you still want to say yes, but your business isn't going to be scalable if you're saying yes to everything. Have you ever met someone and thought their job sounded cool? Or perhaps you're wondering how you can get to a position that doesn't seem to match any of the qualifications you have at the moment. Well, if so, this podcast is for you. We found some people with jobs that you might not necessarily know about or expect people to have, and we're going to ask them about how they got there. Welcome to What Do They Do? A podcast about jobs and how people got them. So this week, we're joined by Holly Daniels Christensen, an entrepreneur that we're going to find out more about as we work through today's episode. We don't want to give too much away, as always, but massive thanks for joining us this week, Holly. We're really glad to have you with us. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah, welcome to the podcast. And we'll kick off with a really simple question that we ask everybody that comes on, which is, when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be a veterinarian. I loved, well, I wanted to be a veterinarian because I love animals. I loved animals, um, although I just happened to not be very good in science. <laughs> so that, that was a little bit of a problem. Um, but because of my love for animals, I really wanted to be a veterinarian or be in some sort of care, um, uh, care role for animals. And how did that play out when you were younger? What happened? Tell us a bit about when you were at school. Did that stick with you? Did you change your mind as you went through? Were you heading in that direction? Sure. I Yeah, I actually was. I worked uh, since I was 11 years old. I worked at a farm in Brewster, Massachusetts called Bassett Wild Animal Farm. It's no longer there, but it was this small zoo um, where I would take care of animals from, I mean, we had lions, we had tigers, monkeys, goats, chickens, horses, um, the whole, it ran the whole uh, gamut of, of types of animals. And I worked there every summer from when I was 11. And I remember I made $5 a day. 
for like hustling eight hour days, cleaning and feeding. And, um, but I made $5 a day and I worked there every summer until I was 18. Um, and when I left, I was making $5 an hour at, at 18. So I really worked my way up the ranks. Did you grow up with animals in the house as well? I did. Yeah. My mother was a huge animal lover. We had horses and chickens and goats. Um, so yeah, I used to milk goats. We would sell the goat milk to people way back before it was even trendy, right? Like before the <laughs> people knew about um, whether like what the benefits were and things like that. So, um, so that was fun. My nine-year-old son would be so jealous. He's, he's, Really, really loves animals too. We've got some chickens in the garden um, and a cat, but we we don't we haven't managed to find him access to that many animals yet. But we have put out a call to a few people who've got local farms and things, <laughs> just to see like, do you want someone that can come and muck out some stables? Because he would be willing. Uh, trickier at the moment because he's got a broken leg, but oh yeah, he he's again like kindred spirit very much so. That's amazing. Yeah, I think for me it was really. Great. It teaches really hard work. It teaches um, it teaches you that there's something greater than you, especially if you're working around horses um, who are so big and so powerful. And you are meant to, I mean, you have to respect them right away or else they're not going to respect you and, and things can happen around a barn or a farm. Um, so I think it's good for kids. My girls are actually at horse camp today um, and they're doing pretty good with it. So, What, what does horse camp involved, involve? Pretty much what Ben was just saying, they're mucking stalls, they do get to ride, um, but they're they're still pretty little. Uh, Lila is six years old, uh, Alexa is eight years old, and, um, and this is their first real interaction with big animals like that. So, um, but right away they, they're, they're doing barn chores, they're lugging hay, um, all of that stuff, which I think is, I just think it's so important these days to learn how to work, how to, how to work hard for something that you want, because in my opinion, and it's just my opinion, so many young kids um, and teenagers just have never had to, they've never, there's been no need for them to work. Um, and I think that sometimes can bleed into adult life. And you mentioned there that you're, you're effectively doing work from age 11, I think you said through to when you were 18 there. And was that alongside being at school? How, how did that work? How did you fit it in? So I worked every summer um, until I moved out of my house when I was 15. Uh, I was still going to high school, but I would work after school um, and was I've essentially been supporting myself since I was 15, which is unusual. And those are unusual circumstances. I don't I mean, I, I don't <laughs> recommend that to anyone, um, but I've worked ever since then. And but the cool thing about that is that I've worked for so many people and done so many things that it really lent its, uh, that experience kind of lent itself to being a, a pretty good entrepreneur. Because obviously we'll get to your your more recent entrepreneurial journey in time, but I get the impression then that you've definitely found a lot of the skills that you picked up through that sort of childhood working environment has definitely come back to to benefit you in what you're doing now. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think there's a lot to be said about emotional intelligence. And when you're young and you're working for people like that and working multiple jobs, not just for fun, but also to support yourself, I think you really do soak in a lot of emotional intelligence. Like you learn 
you innately learn emotional intelligence somehow and how to read people and how to get along with people. Um, and I think that that has definitely been something that's helped me throughout my life. So after sort of thinking about becoming a veterinarian and then going through the, the process of high school, it sounds like circumstances sort of took you away from that. What was, what was the change? Was there a time when you saw that veterinarian dream sort of moving to the side and what, what replaced it and what was the process of kind of high school and, and beyond high school? Yeah, I think I always kind of approach life with uh, some common sense and an understanding of circumstances. And so when I was in high school, I just did not, I didn't like science. I, it, it was not my thing. I loved history and I loved English and, um, but science and math were not something that I was passionate about. And I knew when I couldn't really, really did not want to dissect the frog in school. And I know a lot of people have stories about that. I really couldn't do it. Um, so the, I mean, right there, I'm like, okay, so <laughs> maybe I'll be a dolphin trainer. Like, you know, your brain starts uh, kind of spinning when you realize there are some things that you're not willing to do and maybe you're not going to be good at, um, which is okay because everyone's good at something. I truly believe that. And and I also believe you you just because you're passionate about something doesn't mean it should be your career. Find something you're good at. Make that be your career because that's where you're going to find success. Sometimes passion doesn't um, lend itself to a successful career. And you've got to find, in my opinion, you have to find a balance. Taking a step back there, when you were 18 and you left the job, what was the, your first kind of full-time job then at that point that you went into? God. So it's all, it's like a trip down memory lane. And some of it is like, you're just kind of like, oh my God, I did that. Um, <laughs> my first job was uh, managing a bagel shop. Uh, so it was in hospitality. And because I grew up on Cape Cod, um, which has a really uh, robust tourism um, season during the summer. And so I kind of, I left uh, the farm and I went and just, and at this point, right, I was out on my own. I didn't really quite have a plan. I didn't have money for school um, or a support system um, to go to university or college. Um, so I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm going to get a job. Um, so I started at the counter at this bagel shop and kind of worked my way up into basically running the entire operation um, by the time I was 20. And they were expanding into another location and um, actually cut me in on uh, equity in the second location um, at that point. And I really got into it. I think I tend to find I can I'm one of those people who can find kind of excitement and joy in most most situations. Um, and so I got really into the marketing of uh, Bagelport is what it was called and um, and the menu creation and the sourcing. And I really I liked it. It was good. And I learned a lot from from the people who owned it. They were very young themselves. Um, and I remember looking at the wife, Martina, every day and how she conducted her pe her. She conducted herself with people and she just 
she would could light up a room like people would walk through the front door of the bagel shop and it would just be like good morning and so authentic and so real that she just wanted to know how they were and how are their kids and what's going on at work and like she just was a beacon of light and I really took that to heart thinking how special she makes people feel um, and wanted to always make people feel that same way. It's really interesting you've flagged a, a particular person. We found throughout all of the of the podcast episodes that there's been a, like a a few pivotal people along the way that really help people, whether it was a bit of advice or whether it's like you yourself sort of seeing someone go about their day in a way that kind of inspired you. And clearly yeah. It, yeah. it stuck with you. You remember that as a as a vivid memory. And I need I should also call out her sister Mia, who was also the same amount of amazing. Um, and I loved how family oriented they were, where I was an only child and moved out of my house at 15. You know, just having someone working with and for someone with such deep family roots and um, and such positivity was it was pivotal for sure. I don't know. I don't know where I'd be if I hadn't met them. And how long, like, it's amazing that you went from working the counter to managing the store in a matter of a couple of years, right? How long did you stick around and do that for? Five years. And then did you stay in retail from there? Did you pivot to to something else again? So I actually, what, there was a, uh, a customer from the bagel shop who was like, um, very, he, I think I've taken on that persona of being like bright and happy and energetic. And he was like, I want to teach you how to bartend. I was like, mm, I've heard bartenders make really good money. So <laughs> I thought, why not? Like here I am at that point, 25, 24, actually. I think it overlapped a little bit. I was younger. Sure. Um, so then I learned how to bartend, which of course, at that age, you're making amazing money, a young girl hustling and, uh, and really um, knowing how to make drinks, knowing how to uh, wait on people, customer service um, was good. And again, on Cape Cod, you have that seasonal tourism um, that really brings in big bucks. And, um, and I learned a lot from that as well. Things I learned a lot from that just managing people's personalities and what their needs are. Cause it's certainly different from when they come in at 7am for their bagel to when they come in for their uh, shot of whiskey at 1130. It's just a whole different, it's a whole different um, situation. Right. So definitely took a lot away from, from bartending uh, as well. And again, worked my way up to manage the bar. <laughs> It sounds like, uh, in a similar way, I've heard Dean talk about it, that you just make yourself useful and invaluable um, and you just end up, did you end up finding yourself managing these places without necessarily saying, in three years' time, I'm going to manage this place? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It just, I think it's in my nature and I don't know exactly where the work ethic came from, but it's always been there. It almost to a fault now that I have children, but um, but if you're constantly vigilant about managing um, your family's expectations and trying to find balance, it I think it's a good thing. I'm all for the workaholics out there, okay? That, those sort of jobs are so important as you're growing up for getting you a bit of confidence and yeah. just kind of making you're you... You're going to love the next one, Ben. You're going to really love the next one. <laughs> 
So what was next? You know, you've come from bagels to bartending. What's the next job next, that you found yourself in? One of my bar regulars, and I cannot remember his name. I wish I could. Said, you know what, Holly? You would be amazing in sales. And I'm like, yeah, okay. And uh, and he worked for Quirk Ford. Quirk Ford. And got me into selling cars. <laughs> I see. Uh-huh. Which there's such a stigma here in the U.S. I don't know if it's the same um, in the U.S. about selling cars. But I'll tell you, you guys, I learned a lot. I learned that sales is simply overcoming obstacles. It's adding value. It's being knowledgeable. It's being setting yourself apart from the other salespeople um, by being so knowledgeable. I really, I learned a lot. Um, The hours were horrific. I mean, it was like, not horrific. You know, when you're an entrepreneur, you're working 100 hours a week anyway, but you're doing it for yourself. Whereas when you're selling cars, it's just like, really a lot it's like 60 hours a week and you know one person's up and then the next person's up and um and i'm sure it's changed i mean this was years ago so i'm sure it's changed a bit um but i did work my way from car salesperson up to the finance manager um so that was interesting so as you know you're now that i'm actually speaking about it it's like clicking in my head that it's I really, I always say I picked up a lot from all these different jobs, but I really did because I went from the bottom rung, bottom, bottom, bottom to, you know, somewhat closer to the top. So, Was the uh, car sales really competitive within the, within the branch? Was th- that's the impression yeah. I always get? Yeah. Is that you're always like, no, me first. Um, it, yeah. And I was the only woman. So that is, that always makes for an interesting, uh, interesting environment but um i feel like i earned their respect in a, in a fairly quick manner um whether i did or not maybe it's all in my own head but i did really well but i do remember um not understanding anything about data or kpis or anything like that and so i went to the monthly sales you have a monthly sales meeting um to review the previous month and they're going through And it was my first meeting like this. And they're handing out um, cash to the top people. And they're like, oh, you know, Bob, and here's Joe, and here's, and then they're like, oh, number one um, was Holly. Here's a thousand dollars cash. And I'm like, what? I had no idea. I was so clueless. I was just doing my job, you know, kind of enjoying talking to people and like educating them about the different vehicles and just doing what I was told at that point. Um, and I couldn't believe it. And at that moment, I mean, that was a huge amount of money. It was just like, I think I spent it really frivolously too. It did not go in my bank account. It's like shopping, <laughs> took my friends out for champagne. Like it was, but it was awesome. It felt really good. And that, but it was enough of a, of a um, eye opener to be like, oh, wow. Okay. I should probably pay attention to the, the stats board that's up in the break room and Previous to that, it just didn't matter because previous to that, I was just making people happy through their breakfast bagels and their cocktails. So, but now here I am, this is a performance-based occupation um, and the sky's the limit. The harder I work, the more money I'm putting in my pocket. And obviously 
um, growing up the way I did, uh, money was very important to me, not because I wanted to be a baller, you know, it wasn't, it's not about that money to me equals, um, stability. And that's what I craved, um, and still crave in my life. I don't need to have a Mercedes outdoors. I don't need a Range Rover. I don't need any of that. I just want enough money to be creative, run my company, um, and feel stable. You said something a moment ago I just want to touch on, um, which is that looking back now and kind of talking about all these jobs, you're seeing how everything fits together in a really neat kind of story where you pick up these different skills, right? And it's really interesting. I, I kind of feel the same as well, that when you've gone through these things, they were just different opportunities that presented themselves. And you said yes and grabbed them with open arms. And you never really thought about how they connected together. It's only really when you look back with hindsight you're like, oh, yeah, well, in these places, I learned how to do this. And I recognize yeah. now, like in the car dealership, all of a sudden, objectives are really important because it's going to give me a bonus. It's really interesting, as you like Dean says, like looking back that you could look back on it and say, right, I've got an ultimate goal where I want to be an entrepreneur. What do I need? Well, I need to be good with people. So I'll, I'll go and get some experience in retail. I need to understand finance. So I work my way through the bar to the, you know, to manage the finances or oh, I need some sales experience. Well, car showroom would be the great place to get that but of course that's not that's not the the way you've approached it but it has given you a lot of the tools that I think you're probably going to end up talking about in a moment when we get a, a little bit more up to sort of present like day this is going to be a book you guys now that I'm actually speaking it out loud I can <laughs> tell you the skills I took away from the bagel shop the bar the car dealership I like you know if I get in that mindset it's really interesting Cool there's life. a seminar, there's a program, there's a book. Yeah. <laughs> Out of oh, interest, through all of those roles so far, and, and we'll keep going as well and, and get to where you're at now, um, what do you think the biggest challenge was from all of those? Was there one that particularly stands out to you that was really hard to either pick up the skills or you mentioned that hours were just the slog? What was the hardest thing through that period of your life? Oh, goodness. I think uh, it was just finding value in what I thought the the value between what I was doing or the lack of value between what I was doing and what I thought I should be doing um, was really difficult. I always thought I would do something like we had talked previously, something with animals or um, something maybe charitable or social work or I just didn't picture myself selling cars. I mean, and, and also the stigma that comes with that isn't easy as a young woman um, trying to figure her life out. So I would say there was a lot of internal uh, questioning of myself and trying to push through and build my self-confidence um, because at the time I didn't understand how much I was learning, but I was learning a lot. Eventually, you got into real estate. You ran a real estate business. I did. I actually worked for a real estate developer in Boston. He was um, the largest developer uh, historically that Boston had ever seen. Uh, his name was Harold Brown. He just passed um, just a couple of years ago. He was working up until he was 96. Wow. And, um, and he was the developer. I worked for the, uh, this gentleman, Enrique who uh, was the kind of the in-house 
sales and marketing for the developer. And there was a lot of, they had a lot of deals together, a lot of boys club deals happening that I wasn't privy to, but I was there to show up and sell um, the different buildings that they developed, which I loved. I'm, I'm intrigued to know what, what other gaps did you fill between being at the car dealership and working for the real estate business? Is there anything in between there as well that you feel like added to your skill set? Uh, I was a promotional model, which was basically liquor promotions, running around a bar, handing out shots. I'm not sure if that, that probably taught me what I didn't want to be doing. <laughs> <laughs> that can get a little dicey, um, but it was interesting. And, you know, another, another way where you're balancing, is this worth the money? I decided it wasn't for me. Um, I worked at Dunkin' Donuts doing coffee for a while. I sold cell phones for Cellular One, which is a really long time ago. I don't even think there is Cellular One anymore. Um, oh my gosh, I know I'm forgetting one big one and it'll it'll come to me. Um, it's interesting what you're saying about the the sort of model promotion bit about realizing what you don't want to do. And yeah. again, in a number of episodes, I think that's come up. But also recently, um, a friend and I did a careers fair um, because these young people are stuck at home and they're not getting to do the work experience. So we, we got together a load of different people in different industries uh, and just got them talking. And actually, Dean came on and spoke about his role at Google Um and one of the things that came out from lots of people about how they got to where they were was sometimes they didn't know what they wanted to do, but they definitely discovered over the years what they didn't want to do. Yeah. So it was kind of chalking off all of the options. I tried outdoors. That didn't work for me. I tried sales. That didn't work for me. And then, you know, you get into places, you're, you're working in the marketing department and not feeling that's right. And you, you suddenly discover there's this whole new department you never knew existed. Yeah. And they were like, Oh, well, that looks interesting. And you kind yeah. of work your way over as well. So I think, yeah, discovering what you don't want to do is an important process, right? I agree. I agree very much so. One of the interesting things for me in doing this podcast and something that I think we wanted to highlight from putting it together was how it is completely possible to change careers or not even have a career as such, but have different jobs. And so over the long term, you could view it as a career because you've picked up all the different skills in these different places, but actually that it is completely okay to go back and forth from different sectors, right? To try new things, to fill a gap and do what you need to do for you or your family at any particular time, and then end up somewhere um, after maybe a bit of doing something you didn't really enjoy even, and then kind of land somewhere. No matter what, you're going to take something away from it. You're going to learn from that, whether it's that you learn you love it or you hate it, you know, right? And there's nothing worse than the unknown. I, I you know, I, I hate not turning over every rock. I want to know what's under each and every one of them because that that element of not knowing is something that will stay in my head um, and probably many people's heads. So why not? If it's if you can try it, try it. Why not? What is there to lose? That's awesome. So let's get back to real estate. You have picked up all these skills from selling cars, like manage, working with customers and building these relationships in different, uh, and it sounds like a few other kind of retail spaces as well. And it seems like you loved real estate. So tell us more about that job and how you um, got there and what you loved about it. I think I loved it so much because 
I had complete control over my uh, financial freedom, right? The more you sell, the more you make. And it's as simple as that. But more so, I got to tap into my creativity because it was working for developers. So I would get to sit down at the design meetings and talk about granite and light fixtures and faucets and flooring and what was trending and what was sustainable and and all of the aesthetic of the buildings, um, which of course just made me a better salesperson in the end because I could say I was here from the beginning. This is why we chose this flooring. This is why we chose these appliances. Um, and I, I loved having a say in that. Um, and again, I was the only uh, female within that whole crew. Um, but it was kind of nice to be the only female because they they when we were speaking about design, um, they would look to me and, and kind of lean on me to make some decisions, which I liked. As you mentioned creativity there and having a, a, a part in the creative process. Um, is that like that creative creative part? Is that something you've always kind of dabbled with? throughout your your time from a from a kid onwards or is it something you started to discover okay so it's always been there yeah I always had an artistic side for sure whether it was just drawing or painting or um you know I'm trying to think of some collages I used to do lots of collages which are now considered mood boards but (laughs) um and um I always always had a creative side for sure did you see the potential for your career going in that direction um, at any point, or had it always been something that kind of resided more as a hobby and interest on the side? Yeah, always a hobby because I was constantly having that feeling of, you know, always making sure I made enough money to sustain and keep my head above water um, as opposed to being able to explore the creative side. Um, which was really, I mean, it's now looking back, it's really difficult because I think, you know, it had I not been so concerned about finances, what kind of creative, what other creative endeavors would I have gotten into? Um, but I'm, I'm very lucky that I found real estate because it gave me the financial freedom to dabble in more creative endeavors uh, because I did work in real estate for the first three years of launching my company. A perfect segue there into sort of what you're doing now. So I think it's probably fair timing to sort of talk about that, your endeavors now then. So during the real estate, you started dabbling around with what you do now or a version of what you do now? Yeah. So I was working with uh, my childhood best friend. She had a company where she made these little ornaments out of sand from local beaches on Cape Cod. And um, it was really fun and she's hyper creative and just wanted some help with the business side. So I was helping her with the business side of things, but then it got my creativity flowing and um, we had decided, let's go take some jewelry classes. Like what's the next step? An ornament is beautiful. People are loving it. Um, We were selling a lot of them because they held sentimental value to the beach lovers on Cape Cod. So what was the next step above an ornament and it was uh it was jewelry so we started taking classes together and ultimately she decided to stick with the ornaments and i decided to um launch my uh business which is called dune jewelry and um essentially the premise is that 
we create tangible reminders of life's most precious moments. And um, what we do is we take sand and natural elements and we inlay it into different fine jewelry. We call it experiential jewelry. Um, we actually trademarked that term because we capture experiences in every single piece. And so <clears throat> a good example would be um, like this necklace has sand from uh, Positano, Italy. Not that anyone can see what I'm wearing right now. You guys can. Um, but one of my favorite necklaces is uh, is a sun necklace, and it's filled with sand from Positano, Italy, where I went on my honeymoon. So every time I put that on, every time I touch it, every time I see it in the mirror or a photo, I'm like, oh, my gosh, it's my honeymoon. You know, it brings back those feelings immediately, and it gives me an instant snapshot in my brain of being uh, in Positano, in a pool, overlooking the cliffs, like those, you know, those Italian, beautiful Italian cliffs and all the colors and the ocean. And that's amazing, right? Because everything else right now is stuck in our phones. It's stuck in our computer. It's, it's everything's digital. Whereas this is tangible. You're holding on to it. And I think that that's why it really resonates with people. I think it's entirely the other end of the spectrum from the uh, everyone sit down. I've got my holiday photos to show you moment yeah. that we see in, in some of those TV shows and things. I'm really fascinated by your business in that um, obviously sort of getting started with a creative idea presumably has loads of challenges of going from a place of security with a real, real estate job. When's that jumping off point when you feel like you need to go for it wholeheartedly. And I'll I, tell you, I know the exact moment I had been working in real estate for three years, funding Dune Jewelry. And my husband was kind of getting, I got married. Um, it's interesting. I, I got married in 2010, started Dune as a real business in 2010, although I had been making the jewelry for a couple of years previously as a hobby. And um, so in 2013, he said, listen, He's like, if you can't figure out how to teach other people how to make this jewelry, he's like, there's something wrong with you because there are people who train people to perform brain surgery. So, and right there, it like clicked in my head that I had been so consumed with the creative portion of it and afraid that people wouldn't um, take it as serious as, as serious as I did, or maybe they wouldn't create as beautiful jewelry as I did, or like I wouldn't be able to train them and everything changed from that moment when I'm like, yeah, what am I doing? Like, let's, let's do this. And so I, I left real estate um, and just started doing, doing full time, started hiring people and it grew from there. I mean, we pre COVID, we had uh, 28 full time team members and over 40 sales reps all over the world. Pretty amazing to go from starting something on the side of a full-time job that you were doing into employing teams to create this jewelry with you and sell it. And I'm yeah. wondering how that felt at that moment after you had that conversation with your husband and you made that decision, how did it feel? I just, I think I was so inspired by the thought of not doing real estate. And it wasn't that I was sick of real estate or didn't like it, but it, he was like, this is your chance. Like it's now or never. You can't continue doing both um, and doing both well. And he was right. So I was, I was really energized, very, um, very inspired at the thought of it. And then things kind of 
fell into place. I, I know, um, Dean, you were saying that we tend to use the word luck a lot. Like, well, I was lucky about this or I was lucky to meet this person. Um, but I remember being at an arts and crafts show, super pregnant, sweating, and just like probably people probably felt bad for me. Um, and I joked that they were just buying the jewelry because they felt bad. Um, but I remember that that's where my first sales rep found me. She kept walking back and forth and she was eyeballing everything. And I'm like, what? You know, just come ask me a question. If you have a question, come talk to me. Um, but then eventually she did come over and she started understanding that it was all custom made, made to order personalized jewelry that held at that point. It just held sand from different beaches on Cape Cod. And she was like, oh, my goodness. She's like, I could sell this to so many people. And it was like right place, right time. And she was my first sales rep. And so I've just learned everything along the way. I mean, luckily, I did um, find a business mentor because um, I'm not sure where I'd be at this point without a business mentor, because I at that point had the creative side down and was really starting to understand that and love that and um, excel at that. But I had no idea what a profit and loss statement was or what to do with one if I did know what it was. So luckily, I also got myself a business mentor. Seems to me there are lots of questions with that, that the, in the, the business is in its infancy where you've got sand from beaches local to you, which I logistically, I can, I can see that. To expand to where you've got now, where you've got bits of materials from across the world, like how you decide where you're going to sort of expand to, how you're going to grow that. I, I'm really fascinated by what processes you went through. What was the plan? Well, Does it look anything like the plan down. now? There was no plan. Hey. <laughs> my biggest thing, and any of my team members will tell you, listen to your customers. Listen to your customers. Because if your customers aren't happy, you have no business, not in the jewelry industry. Um, so they would call and they'd say, um, hey, I just I have a little rock from the granite, uh, the Rocky Mountains. Can we crush it up and put it into something? Yes. Hey, I have lace from my wedding dress. Is there any way to put that in your jewelry? Yes. Even if I didn't know, I'd say yes, because I can try. Um, coal recovered from the Titanic. Um, flower petals from weddings, flower petal, petals from funerals, um, ashes, not only from pets, but also humans. Um, you know, that's why we evolved from the original Beach Sand Jewelry Company into the one and only experiential jewelry company in the world because we capture experiences in every single piece. Um, mostly good experiences, lots of first kisses and honeymoons and family vacations and childhood beach homes, but also um, ashes from loved ones or pets. Um, yeah, it's it's wild. And I think it's it's so interesting as a business person, as a business owner, that in the beginning, for me, it was always with my team, we come from a place of yes, we say yes, and we figure it out later. Say yes, 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 yes. But then you get to a point and you realize logistically, yes, you still want to say yes, but there are your business isn't going to be scalable if you're saying yes to everything. So you, you really have to kind of absorb that knowledge and have the the word, I mean, the hum humility to like be like, eh, 
okay, I've got to say no now. And everyone's going to look at me and be like, but you, but you always say yes. You tell us to always say yes, but there's no way. Eventually you have to start controlling the business and planning and figuring out what the next six months look like, 12 months, 24 months. Um, and it's hard right now because we, you know, we were on track to be over 5 million in revenue in, in 2020, which would have been our best year. Um, and now I, I'm continuously looking at our budget thinking like, oh, do I rewrite it at 50% of that? Do I rewrite it at 30% of it? I don't know because COVID has deeply impacted our, our brick and mortar business, you know, our wholesale business. You you have to listen to your customers. They're going to take your business to a place of, of where it can be successful, right? If you're trying to control the narrative right away, which, of course, there are very successful businesses that do that. Um, but for my business, that doesn't work. We're very emotional. We're very sentimental. Um, we're just different um, than anything else out there. So, Thank you for sharing about the current situation as well, because I can't imagine how it must feel at this point in time, just the uncertainty in the world anyway, let alone being a business owner that... Um, there is no way to predict what it's going to look like, right? It's hard to make that decision on where do I, what percentage of my budget do I actually commit to this year? Because we've never been through this before. I'd love to come back to that in a moment as well. I just want to jump back very slightly. You mentioned scalability and it mm. feels like that first conversation that you had with your husband, he was basically saying to you, how are you going to scale this, right? You can't be up at all hours of the night making jewelry. Yeah. Just, are there any other that that seems to me to be the first kind of key point where you were like, OK, I'm going to grow this now. This is going to get bigger. Yeah. Are there any other really key moments where you felt like the business scaled in a big way or was it a pretty linear kind of growth from that point And you just gradually added a few more people to your team and, and moved onward? I mean, I think COVID really had me looking at the business differently because every piece that goes out of our studio is handmade personalized and made to order. So when an order comes into my studio, it comes in, it goes to the admin. She prints it out, dates it for when it has to go out. She goes and pulls the, the sterling silver findings, goes and pulls the elements. So say mother of pearl and uh, sand from Cornwall, right? Um, and then passes it off to the artist. The artist creates it. It goes to packaging and QC and they polish it and package it beautifully because it's custom packaged as well because it's custom for you um, and out the door. And I think we had been really toying with the idea that the wholesale business of Dune just really simply wasn't that profitable. But then I would rationalize it saying, you know, it doesn't matter because it gives us so much brand awareness throughout the entire world, all through the Caribbean. That's okay because eventually they're going to find our website and our website is very profitable. And so I kind of let it go like that. But then once COVID hit and 70% of our revenue shut off because 70% was coming from brick and mortar, it was like, Ooh, <laughs> uh Oh, so I, I didn't rebrand. I, I did a brand refresh um, that'll be coming out uh, September, which is our 10 year anniversary. And, we changed from Dune Jewelry to Dune Jewelry & Co. Um, with a little refresh on the logo. It's amazing. Um, <laughs> and we are adding a small experiential candle collection to the lineup that we can sell online. Um, one smells like the Amalfi Coast. One smells like Cape Cod. One smells like the Outer Banks. Um, 
And uh, so there's 10 of them all together. But in my mind, I'm like, okay, so we're the experiential jewelry company. Let's see, let's just try a small collection of experiential, like really high quality experiential candles that you can close your eyes, transport yourself. You've got your Amalfi Coast necklace on, you've got your candle burning, you've got a glass of red wine, um, Italian red wine, and you're, so it's like a a little bit more immersive. Um, And, but the reason I did that, so that's all the romance, right? Kicking back with your Italian red wine and the candle burning. (laughs) Really, it was because if I get these candles made at the right price, suddenly I've got something in the studio that I can pick and pack and ship without touching five people in the studio, which, of course, then brings the profit margin down. So um, it's so it sounds like COVID, as difficult as this situation has been, has almost given you the opportunity to take a step back and and have a wider view of the business and kind of rethink yeah, the approach. Yeah. 110%. And who knows if it's going to be successful or not? I know it. I know it will be. But um, but I can't say that it is, is yet because it's not launched. We'll be launching that collection on our anniversary, which is September 28th. This is something that's going to affect us well through 2020 and into 2021. I would say by the end of 2021, I'll have a really good idea. I'll be back to having a solid idea of exactly where my business is at. But right now it's day to day and it's it's moment to moment and just trying to make the best decisions possible. Um, Cause I'm not going anywhere after 10 years, you know, this has been, this is, this is my life's greatest journey. Like this Dune jewelry and I have children and my husband's probably going to be like, what the hell? <laughs> but, <laughs> but Dune for me, obviously professionally is, is the greatest journey I've ever been on. And I can't wait to see where I can take it. And I think it will be clear at this point to the to all the listeners that as as passionate as you were about the bagel shop <laughs> and real estate and all of the other and selling cars, like the the level has risen when you started talking about your jewelry and the experiences. Because earlier on in the episode, you talked about that balance between my you know, doing something that feels worthwhile um, or doing something that makes a bit of money, and it, it sounds like you very much. I mean, when you were talking about what those pieces mean to the people that you're making them for, that sounds like you're very fortunate to to have something uh, that really sort of hits you where it matters and also allows you to have a living as well. It's unbelievable. It's And our customers are so loyal and amazing and giving and they share their stories with us and they tell us about how their mom cried, you know, tears of emotion when they gave them this this bracelet, you know, on their birthday. And um, we're really lucky to be building this community of uh, women and men that are just so giving in their storytelling and like sharing with us. Because if I didn't know about all the great reactions to 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 people receiving it, I wouldn't know how special it was. So. Again, lucky, Dean. I'm lucky to have such great customers and fans and it's a lot. So does your social media uh, play a big part in being able to see the kind of the fruits of your labor? Yes. So, well, yeah, it does. In the beginning, it was Facebook because this was 10 years ago, right? So Facebook was totally organic and I got to speak to the customers every single day. Do you like this design? Do you like that design? 
you know, send me sand from here. If you go, like, there was just a constant conversation happening. Um, now it's very different, right? Um, Instagram's great because we have so many beautiful visuals, but if you're brand new to, to doing jewelry, you're probably like, oh, that's pretty jewelry. You don't understand the sentimental value. Um, so during COVID, my brand manager and I started um, doing this little segment called Kitchen Tabletop because we were just back to making jewelry at the kitchen table during COVID. So I'm like, I am not shutting this business down. We'll just work from home. Um, so we were creating from home, making the jewelry, shipping it all through Mother's Day. And then we started doing Kitchen Tabletops where we really get to speak to our customers. And I think, again, a silver lining of COVID people were bored and they were kind of like, uh, all right, let's check this out. And so now we're getting um, an average of like 2000 views on Facebook and 2000 views or 1500 views on Instagram. And we're kind of building upon that. Um, so yeah, social media is huge for us as long as we prioritize it. I think for a long time, I was kind of like, make the jewelry, get it out the door, make the jewelry, get it out the door. And that was my priority. And it still is. Um, and customer service, and we have a lifetime warranty and all of that. But social media has to be just as important because there's no other way to get your brand message out there these days, um, especially with all the brick and mortar stores closed down. I also noticed on your social media that um, at the beginning of the year, you did a fundraiser for the for the fires in Australia. We and did. We you just raised a good amount of, of money too. Um, we just jumped on that. I, I couldn't... I. Again, animal lover, like the kangaroo photos and the koala photos really tore at all. my entire team was like, oh, my God, what can we do to help? And the only way that we knew how to help was to try to raise some money and send it over and and pray um, that things got under control. But we do a lot of charitable fundraising. And the, the significant thing with that is I think there's there's a big global of like recognizable event that again there's so many things we forgot about in 2020 because of covid it doesn't it feels like a lifetime ago that that was happening um yeah i think unfortunately there is a lot of suffering uh the human race is is just suffering um all over the world right now and for so many reasons and um I, I mean, we've got to hope that this is a learning experience for some people and that we can come out on the other side, better people and more caring and giving and understanding because otherwise, what's it all, what's it all for? Well, I suppose you get an insight into those very special moments that people have and, and, and connect them to it for, for the rest of their lives, don't you, with the work that you do? Um, I love, yeah, I love like reading the gift messages to uh to different people and i mean some of them are so sweet some are so funny like really really cheeky messages but then some are super emotional and um but it's great to have that insight yeah to be able to hear those people's thoughts and what they're feeling during this time um and for me if i'm gonna tell you anything people are just they're feeling sad but hopeful everyone is hopeful it's always like you know, I'm so sorry we're not going to see you this year, but can't wait till next year on the Jersey Shore or can't wait to see you um, in St. John in 2021. Or So, listen, we, if anything, we're resilient, right? As humans, we are resilient and we're 
definitely going to get through this. And it's just a moment in time. It's just a very difficult moment in time. Inspirational words. And there's a really interesting insight into the messages that you see as well. Holly, it's been amazing to hear about your story. And I just want to thank you for being so open throughout as well and, and sharing so much with us. So one final question to kind of finish us off then. And again, I really have loved hearing about how you built the business, what the business does. I think it's fascinating. And um, we'll make sure we leave a link to June Jewelry, soon to be June Jewelry and Co. Um, down below. So definitely check that out. I just want to know, you know, you you found yourself on your own at a very young age, having to sustain yourself financially and figure out what it is that you wanted to do. You had a passion for animals. You found yourself in retail. You clearly worked really hard at everything that you ever tried to tackle. What's your biggest piece of advice to someone now who finds themselves maybe in a similar situation or is just trying to figure out what they want to do? If you could say one thing to them, what would it be? I get, you know, the one thing I just be a good person, work hard, find something that you love but also find something that you're not, there's a little bit of natural ability, right? Um, like if I had turned out to be a vet, everyone would be in trouble. I can't even, <laughs> I can't even dissect the frog in high school. Like, uh, so although you may be passionate about something, also look at it with, uh, through some common sense eyes and make sure that it's something that you can do, that you're going to love doing, um, but that also you have some natural talent for, and then just go for it. There's no better time than right now. Don't wait. Don't wait. I think two great words to end the uh, show with today. Thanks again for all your time. Um, I really hope that the business comes together. I love the new candle idea. And I know this has been a tough year on any retail business, actually, there's especially ones that operate in some way in the high street. And so I, I hope that you see continued success through 2021 and beyond as well. Thank you, Ian. Thank you, Ben. So nice. It's been a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.